You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the I Dig It Podcast. A podcast where we talk about the student perspective of navigating the world of archaeology and anthropology. I'm your host, Michaela. And I'm your host, Alyssa. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the episode titled Grants, Grants, Grants. It's not titled Grants, Grants, Grants. Oh, what are we titling it? I Oh, I did Grants and Fellowships and Scholarships. Oh, my. Isn't that cute? Yeah. I just want the validation. <laughs> Very cute. As we start to enter grant writing and application season, we wanted to do a segment to talk about the importance of grant funding, how it helps with your research, with your CV, and your future job prospects. Dun, dun, dun. We wrote dun, dun, dun in the script, so I needed to say that. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Right, we'll be talking about why they're important, when to apply to them, how to find them, and what goes in them. And in addition to this information, we'll link a couple resources. I wrote a blog post on Tumblr <laughs> about this. Um or during my master's degree, um, and also after getting my Fulbright grant. So I kind of just like copy pasted just the information I use so people could use it as like a template, that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. And so in addition to my personal experiences, we'll also be pulling out information from the book titled The Professor is In by Dr. Karen Kelsky. If you're not following her Facebook page, definitely do that because she shares a bunch of great information about the academic world in general and has also been keeping her audience up to date with current political events surrounding academia as well. So she's a great resource. Yeah. I always see posts like daily from her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And her book in particular is very blunt about how hard it is to be an academic. And I appreciate that <laughs> because I think a lot of people don't realize just how hard it is to get a job in general, especially if you're looking into like uh, being a professor or a teacher, that sort of thing, coming out of a humanities major like we are. So yeah, she's very, very blunt. Like, hey, this is going to be super hard. Here's all the things you can do to make it easier. But you got to know when to quit and move on to something else. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much her book. But it's great and full of a whole bunch of amazing resources about not only applying to grants, but also what to do during your PhD and how to manage like publishing, what you should be looking for when you're publishing what to spend your time on while you're in your PhD program, when to start looking for jobs, et cetera. And so there's a lot of great stuff in there. I kind of popcorn around it whenever I have free time. So I, I plan on using it as my Bible when <laughs> my, <laughs> my school starts. So, yeah. Yeah. But a mentor passed it down on to me. And so now I'm passing it on to you guys. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to be pulling from that. First off, we'll talk about why grants are important. Grants are super important to set you apart from everyone else competitively, in addition to things like publications, which are also extremely important, um, conferences, experiences, those sort of things that all go on your CV also need to include grants, especially if you're going into academic research or being a professor or applying to grad school. Grants are something that they always look for. And it doesn't necessarily matter if it's like a big grant or small grant, just as many grants as you can get shows that you have the ability to get money from these places and use it to do your research. And that tells you a lot about a person if they're able to obtain all these grants. And so they're kind of like evidence of a peer review or like evidence of pre-vetting. So they don't really need to assume too much about you because someone else did it previously and gave you this money. So it like gives you credibility in that way if you also have grants. A major grant shows you 
to be set apart from everyone else. So that includes stuff like the National Science Foundation or Nat Geo or Fulbright, et cetera, et cetera. Those big government funded grants that are like 20,000 or more dollars um, are a super good way to like set you apart from everyone else. But those aren't the only important ones. It's also good to have small grants of like a couple hundred dollars or so to like help you publish a paper or whatever. And so all grants are good grants. And the more grants you get, the more grants you'll be able to get. <laughs> so they they compound each other. So so when you say like peer review, is it because the grant has to go through like several different processes where people review it and all that? Yeah, exactly. So when you're applying to a grant, you already have like three recommendation letters that go along with that grant too. So you have all these people vouching for you. And then getting the grant, you have to come above hundreds of other people who applied for it. So they decided that you were the most well-equipped to carry out whatever research you're doing. So They want to give you their money. Exactly. You show them that you are capable of handling their money well. That's stressful. Putting it to good use. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah. It's stressful. I, whenever I applied to a grant, I always felt like tingling in my body up until the day I receive it or don't receive it. Like, it's just a constant stress of when will I get this money? Will I even get this money? Can I do my research? Like, yeah. So everything about this process is stressful. Continuously checking the dates where it's supposed to come in. Always <laughs> yeah, checking. Refreshing your email. Your email. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nothing about this process is not stressful. So yeah, knowing how to do it makes it easier. Not less stressful, but definitely yeah, easier. easier. <laughs> it's like it's easy. It just might not be simple. Yeah, no, it's never simple. Fortunately, I've had a lot of good people around me when I was applying to grants. So I've been pretty successful. Like there, I would say, yeah, I've been pretty successful. There's a couple that I haven't gotten. Um, For example, the ones we both applied to for grad school funding (laughs) for um, University of York, stuff like that. It's like thousands of people applying for one position to receive like $5,000. And like your likelihood of getting those sort of grants aren't awesome. There were only grants that were only for UK residents. So then that just eliminates a large population of the people coming in because they're all international students. Yeah, exactly. So there's there's a lot of stuff that you won't even be qualified for or won't. Yeah, you're just not like what they're looking for. And that's fine. But with stuff like the Fulbright, like hundreds of people get the Fulbright grant every year. And hundreds of people in each different version of the Fulbright, too. So they have, like, the, like, teaching abroad Fulbright, and then they have the research Fulbright, and then they have, like, the postdoc and school funding or whatever. So there's a lot of opportunity to get those grants, especially if you're applying to do it in a country where not a lot of people are trying to go to. So if you're applying to a grant in, like, France, so many people want to go to France or London or those sort of places, Germany, et cetera. But if you're applying to uh, like a small Southeast Asian country or a small African country or stuff that's kind of um, less on the radar for the average Joe, you have um, a better likelihood of receiving that grant, especially if your research is like well thought out and everything. So, yeah. I know you came into contact with people when you're already when you guys have already been accepted, but from even those people, because I know, I remember you went to like that big meeting in North Carolina. Exactly. Oh my God. I remember that. (laughs) Did you come across anyone who you kind of got in like, kind of were like, are you just going to travel and just kind of be a tourist? Yeah. I mean, especially for, I think that is a big motivation, especially for, like the English teaching abroad, like, of course, you want to go to like help people and teach English or whatever. But the whole point of Fulbright is cultural exchange anyway. And so it's for people who want to go to these new cultures that they haven't necessarily been a part of in the first place, and then exchange information about like being a US resident or being Southeast Asian resident. So I think 
traveling is a big motivation for Fulbright specifically. And the people that I met there come from like all different wakes of academia. Like there are people who are just coming out of undergrad from like small community colleges or coming out of Ivy Leagues or coming out of grad school or they're like 60 years old ex-professor who just wanted to do some research in China or something like that. So there's like people from all over the place, all different times in their life applying for those grants. And so you're not really getting like the same type of people getting the grant, which is which was really cool about Fulbright in general. Like everyone, it was very diverse to begin with. And then you're also learning more about other countries with that. So that one's a little different in respect to like academic grants that most people will be applying to, to like fund their own research. I know for Fulbright and I, and for other grants as well, it just gives people the opportunity to do things that they may never have the opportunity to do. So whether it's going to teach English abroad and doing research abroad and being able to be in the country where they really would love to do research for their life, you know, and their careers. And these grants are just grant. Yeah. Grants in general are the ones that help people do that. Yeah. And so with Fulbright in particular, a lot of people use it as a stepping stone into their research. So for a lot of people who get it, they've never been to this country, never done this type of research, but they might use it to continue like grad school research or PhD research or any sort of thing like that too. So those sort of grants can be used as a starting point, or they can also be used as like a way to fund something you're already doing. So a lot of people use Fulbright to fund their grad school program or fund their postdoc research or that sort of stuff too. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot of variety for what you can get out of that sort of grant, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Do you think that having Fulbright on your CV helped you with Stanford? Probably. <laughs> I mean, I think Fulbright holds a very prestigious name in the academic world in general. and any sort of big grant like that, like NSF or anything, will make people look at you a little closer, I think, um, just because it shows you were able to do that. And then that's like a 10-month research period, too. So you were like in the country doing stuff for 10 months, and not a lot of people can say they've done that. And so I definitely think it yeah, it, it like there's no questioning it. It probably added a lot to my CV. Um, oh, she knows what she's talking about. Yeah, yeah we'll give her a look. Yeah, it's definitely it definitely didn't hurt <laughs> to have it. Yeah, I don't think it's necessary at all by any means to have a full right to get into like a top school. But yeah, it definitely helps for sure. Because I know that you said this having a grant adds value to your CV. So when mm-hmm. you go to apply for more jobs and funding and stuff. So I didn't know if like you may have might have thought that. <laughs> yeah, I think the the main thing with academia is it's really hard to get your first anything. So like first publication, first grant, first job, etc. But once you get your foot in the door, it'll just snowball from there usually. And so that's the same thing with grants. Like once you get your first grant, it'll be easier to get like smaller grants or bigger grants or that sort of thing. It'll put you higher on the list of like who they're looking for. And same with like jobs too. Like once you get your first CRM job or whatever, you can go up from there, sideways from there, whatever. And so, yeah, it's the first one that's always the hardest one. But once that happens, it's a lot easier to move forward from there. Yeah. And it's also just like with career jobs too. The first one's always the hardest to get, but then after you have that one and you hold it for a bit, when you're going off to apply for other things, it's a bit easier because they see like, oh, you work there or I see you working there and doing that. So I guess that just goes along with a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And as the more you can get on your CV, the better, especially in academia to show like you had your name as like a third, fourth, fifth author on a bunch of papers and add those lines or a bunch of little writing grants here and there, add those lines. Like the more 
the merrier, especially especially in anthropology and archaeology specifically. It's probably different, like slightly in other fields, but with with anthropology specifically, they look at like how many publications you have, how many grants you got, um, how many teaching assistantships you did, and stuff like that. So, or at least for like academic jobs, like professor. Yeah, lines are important. And I've seen, like, once you're out of PhD in the real world or whatever, people try to get, like, one new line every month or two on your CV, which I think is a good goal. Like, when you're grad school, that's a little harder to do, but I still think it's a good goal to try to get, like, at least one every few months, whether that's, like, a paper or um like we're doing the podcast so like that was a new thing for um a couple months ago and mm-hmm. then grants and stuff like that so yeah conferences i think yeah conferences again. yeah exactly or like submitting your paper to something or yeah mm-hmm. yeah uh, so, don't talk about publications yeah i need to work on mine too yeah, Sarah's so like, get it done before you enter school, and I'm like, ah, that's like you got time three weeks away. <laughs> well, it's yeah. like the dissertation. You're fine. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I'm trying. We'll see. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. with that, let's grants end the segment. Important. Yeah, grants are important, and then we'll talk about when to apply to them. Do do do. And welcome back from our break. Hello. So. When to apply to grants right now, right when you hear about grants and that you're supposed to be doing them, start looking them up to do them. So type of grant awards, um, there's different ways to find grants and what types of grants you'll be applying to. If you're in university, your university typically has internal awards awards and pools of money to pull from for student research uh you can find those by going to your professor or the administration and just asking for it and they'll likely point you in the right direction those are localized easy to access usually easy to apply to also because not a lot of students will be thinking to do that or at least that's what I found in my undergrad university. Like they just have money sitting there waiting for someone to apply for it. So go apply to internal grants, especially with undergrad. Like not a lot of undergrad students do their own personal research. And so I think uh, access to those is a lot easier than when you get to like PhD funding and that sort of stuff. So definitely check with your university to see if they have anything that you can apply to. Another thing is external awards. So that's stuff from like government. Um, so like the NSF and Fulbright, et cetera, Mellon scholars, all that stuff. Universe, your university will likely have information on those too and where to find them. If you go to your grad research, undergrad research, local place, I don't know what it, We ours was called UGAR, which was like, undergraduate research UGAR academic research undergraduate academic research that is spelled out (laughs) something like that (laughs) there was um a professor he did his field he had his own like little field school but people that were chosen to do it were supposed to be like enrolled in his class the following semester Mm. and then there might be a grant but that's only for there's like only one Mm. which interesting was there and then it was yeah yeah i wasn't able to go to the field school but well just look it's probably different for or it definitely is different for every yeah it's different but just that's why it's also really good to look around for the external grants with the government and even just on like the archaeological websites or anthropological websites they have so many links and then there's things called micro grants. And that's just kind of like lending, not lending, <laughs> definitely not lending, <laughs> giving out like smaller amounts, not like thousands upon thousands, which bigger grants and government grants and stuff can do. 
but it's definitely like they're there to help you out, especially within the research, similar research fields. And like I found one for classical archaeology or just work and research in the classics area. I'll, I'll link it in, but it's for and by people within the classics department because they want people to be able to do their research. There's stuff everywhere. Yeah. When, when I was an undergrad, for example, I had a professor who was doing research in Mexico and she asked me to, or if I wanted to come with her. And so she sent me to, like our anthropology department had money specifically for student research, like within the anthropology department. So I applied to that and then also to the UGAR uh, program, which they had like a bunch of different donors, like alumni donors that gave money specifically for research. So they picked an expedition grant that was most relevant to mine and then gave me that grant after applying to those. So I was able to get to like $5,000 to cover my expenses for a month in Mexico, which included like flight and everything. And then I got to keep what I didn't use, which is cool. Or one of them, I had to itemize everything that I bought. So I used that one for most things, like the flights and stuff. And then the other one, I got to keep what I didn't use. So that was cool. Went and got a haircut after. <laughs> yeah, but there's stuff like that. That was at Dartmouth. So they have a bunch of funding, obviously. Yeah, the more the more private your school is, the more money they have to throw away on people. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're going to a private school... Yeah, yeah. If you're going to a private school, the likelihood of there being just tons of money that you can tap into to do stuff is very good. So check it out. Yeah. So when you're about to graduate from undergrad or if you're newly graduated from undergrad, then a lot of people do independent research grants such as the Fulbright, for example, or stuff like that where you would take a year or so to do your own research as like sort of a gap year between undergrad and grad school, if that's something you wanted to do. And then before you start grad school, it's also good practice to begin applying for multiple sources of financial support because a lot of PhD programs, for example, all the students fight for money in the department. And so it's good to have multiple sources of income going into grad school also. Um, I'm very fortunate with Stanford where they don't accept more people than they can fully fund. So everyone who is in the department gets full funding for five years, which is awesome. So we're not like at each other's necks fighting for funding and being sad when we don't get it and stressed and that sort of thing. So they were able to eliminate like the main stressor of PhD is the funding that's a good thing to like look into when you're applying to PhD programs too is the funding that they'll give you, especially with anthropology and archaeology. I've been told by so many people that PhD is not worth it unless you're fully funded because it is just too much time and effort and money to like be coming out of your own pocket and the debt is just not worth it, especially because the job market in general coming out of it is so difficult that like you don't want to also be thousands of dollars in debt with that. I remember when I was applying for my undergrad, I was like my dream university was UCLA, but I knew I didn't have the funding for it and I didn't want to take out loans for an undergrad. I'm like, if I were to take out loans, it would be for master's or maybe PhD, but for PhD, you want to get funded. And I guess even for master's, you should find funding. But alas, I didn't. But <laughs> it was still like, okay, like let me apply to the universities where I know that I can be able to afford. So I applied to the state universities. And I didn't feel like I limited myself in that way, where it's like I could apply for like other universities and apply for scholarships. But it was just like, I don't know. I didn't feel that like I was missing out because I'm just like, you get like a lot of similar education. The name of the school doesn't necessarily represent the quality of education you're getting. Yes. And so my university was perfect for what I needed to learn. And I learned so much. It's like I was in a similar situation where if I applied to like UCLA, I wouldn't have been able to afford it at all. And so, but like I was recruited through soft, 
softball, but I didn't get softball funding at all because Ivy Leagues don't do um, athletic funding. It's all based on financial aid or whatever. Yeah. So something I didn't know about Ivy Leagues when I was like looking for schools is Dartmouth in particular has so much funding from being private and alumni donors and all of that, that their financial aid is almost like 100%. So me going to Dartmouth, I didn't have to pay anything. I think a lot of people don't realize that. They see these big names and they're like, oh, I'd never be able to afford that because it's an Ivy League. So I'm just not even going to apply to it. But a lot of schools like Dartmouth have the resources to give you which is really cool. And I'm glad they told me that when they were recruiting me because like right when Dartmouth started looking at me, we were like, oh no, like I can't afford that. Sorry. But then they're like, oh no, no. Like we have financial aid and it'll all be covered if you make under this much with your family and that sort of thing. So definitely good to know that going into undergrad and like searching for schools is don't take everything face value, kind of dig into their financial programs and what they offer to students because I think a lot of people miss out on like those like quote-unquote bigger opportunities just because they don't know about it and knowledge is power but yeah UCLA though like their funding is problematic so, <laughs> like I've never heard someone go into UCLA without accruing a ton of debt so same with like Berkeley and all those schools like state schools and UCs are public less funding for individual people without like scholarships and stuff so how do we find these grants so I would say I didn't even know about looking for grants until my professor specifically told me to apply to this certain grant that I was applying to and so just knowing that they're out there to begin with puts you at an advantage because I think a lot of people don't. But like we said before, you can look into your internal grants and your university. You can go to your professors and your advisors and ask if there's any opportunities for funding to do sorts of research that you want to do. It's also good to just Google around. Like if you're interested in digital archaeology for example just google digital archaeology grant and stuff will pop up or like women in science or um can do like people of color have certain grants too or if you're like native american there's certain grants that apply to you or if you're japanese or that sort of thing so there's a lot of like ethnic grants that apply to like all regions of research there's also grants specific to like grad school funding. So you can look up funding for UK master's degrees and like a bunch of stuff will pop up for that. And then also if you're in grad school or if you already graduated from undergrad, a lot of the times your undergrad school will have funding for alumni. Like if you're if you graduated within the last five years or so, they'll have pools of money for you to be able to apply to to use towards research or a graduate degree, stuff like that. Also, I didn't know about that going into grad school, so I didn't apply to my undergrad funding for graduate funding, which I was sad about. I only learned about it like a year later, and I was like, what? I could have applied for that. could have not had to spend $20,000. But yeah, so... Your university, you pay for the network at university. And by way of being in that network, you can use it for the rest of your life. It doesn't have to stop when you graduate. So keep looking back on the schools you went to and figure out how they can help you in the future, too. I think that's a good point to keep in mind. Just ask for help. Someone will point you in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. All right. Segment three. And we're back. So now we're getting into the juicy details of how to write a grant. Fun. 
<laughs> so this is where I'll be quoting a lot of Dr. Kesky in her book, The Professors, and I just brain farted. Uh, so she actually has a chapter in the book titled The Foolproof Grant Template. So that's nice. And reading through it, I saw a lot of similarities of how I was writing my grant too. And I think that's because my mentor shared with me the graph that she put in the book. So I was probably already following this before I even knew about the book. So, and I got the grant. So I have a hundred percent success rate with, with this particular method using it once. So if that doesn't convince you, I don't know what will. She says that the structure has helped her with or when the majority of the grants she applies to and her students have also had similar successes with it. So that's just some credibility with it. So the first step in applying to a grant after you've already found it is identifying a general topic of wide interests that your specific project relates to. So, for example, Michaela, what was the one you wanted to apply to with New Zealand? I wanted to do something along the lines of research that I've already done and I made a film, a VR film for back in 2017 before I finished my undergrad. And I knew that it could go along with the storytelling Fulbright and then also make it go along with some other Fulbright, the academia, academic one. And so I wanted to look at certain people in a certain region and being able to record in a way where I was making a like little documentary style film. Like an ethnographic film type. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ethnographic film. It would be more like doc I don't know. It's like I wrote up a proposal for it, just kind of like what I wanted to do. It wasn't like for the grant proposal, but I was just more of like a summarizing what I wanted to achieve with this. And it's like, okay, kind of for myself. And so then I would be applying it to this model later on. But yeah, it was for Fulbright, but kind of putting yeah. it on hold for right now yeah. because of the world. The world. Because <laughs> the world's on fire. Yeah. yeah. So the you find your topic and this general topic is not only interesting to you but it also has to present itself as significant to your field of research and anyone who will be reading your grant proposal because the likelihood of them being in your field of interest is probably very slim they're probably from different backgrounds and so it needs to be interesting to everyone who lays eyes on your grant proposal And so, for example, you probably won't have much luck if you're applying to a grant with a topic that many people have already done before. And so start with the broad theme and then funnel it down into an interesting topic that will get your readers excited. And that hasn't already been done in the way that you want to do it. With that being said, let's get into what goes into each section of a grant proposal, according to the professors. And the first two paragraphs will introduce your topic, bringing brief reference to relevant literature in the region, and suggest how, despite previous research that's been done, they, previous scholars haven't addressed what you're looking at specifically. And so, therefore, there is a gap in knowledge. Here's why the gap is bad and needs to be filled. And I will be the one to be able to do this for you. And then mention why you're applying to this specific grant and how the grant will support your research. And basically why they're perfect for you and why you're perfect for them. That sort of thing. For example, in my Fulbright grant to do archaeological research in Cambodia, My first couple paragraphs went something like, in 2015, a bunch of LIDAR was collected over Cambodia. The landscape is covered in small temple sites that are visible in the data and have yet to be analyzed. Using this grant, I will be the one to do this, etc. And then I went into background of the site where I would be surveying and focusing my research on, what I plan to do, um, how the research builds off of my master's dissertation, so how stuff how it builds off of stuff you've already done or why you're interested in it in the first place, and then how I would have access to certain institutions in the country that would help me with my research. So mentioning that last part 
um, is important if you have that element because it shows that if you run into any issues, you have access to people who can help you with those issues. So for me, it was like access to the local library and their workstations and the data there and the archaeologists working there, et cetera, that sort of thing. And so that like kind of adds like a security to you being in the country doing that thing. And so it could also be like, I will be partnering with this organization or with this team who's already there doing this thing. Then the next section, you will write the specifics of your research. This includes stuff like the background information, location, history of the site, context, limitations, etc. For me, this included reasoning for why my research was innovative in its use of certain technologies. I was using LIDAR and GIS and 3D modeling, that sort of thing. And the methodology for analyzing the LIDAR data and why documenting these things is important for general scientific research and public awareness. And then for the remainder of the body, you write in your methodology, your lit review, timeline and plan of research, and budget if that's relevant. For mine, we didn't have to provide a budget as it was already like a set amount of money that they were going to give you if you won. And so I wrote about why I was particularly qualified to execute this project given my previous education and experience and blah, 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 and how I would in turn contribute to the local community while I was there, if I got the grant. And so a good rule for grant writing is never go over the word count that they give you. If they give you like a 1,500 word limit, don't go over 1,500 words. That's because they're reading so many things. And if you're not able to say your research in the amount that they give you, then it's likely that you're just fluffing it up with extra information. So you want to be able to be concise and clear and obvious in what you're trying to accomplish with your research. Any questions? <laughs> well, so yeah. So when it all starts with the, um, when you get the grant. <laughs> How do you do that again? How do you, how do you do that again? <laughs> when, so with Fulbright, they want to see how you will give back to the local community. Mm -hmm. How did you do it? So in my grant proposal, I was writing that I would be affiliated with the Center for Khmer Studies, which was local to Same Reap, where I was proposing to live, and also the EFEO, which was a French institution for archaeology in Cambodia. And so with that section, I said that I would contribute by either like giving talks to the community when they had open conferences and getting involved with like local schools and people and that sort of thing. So that's how I incorporated what I would do with the research. Oh, and then I also talked about how this was all going to be part of a bigger project, which would result in various publications. Um, so it would be research that would be released to the public. So that that was my way of writing that. We love open access. Open access, indeed. So something that Dr. Kelsky in her book makes a point about is that this isn't easy to do. It's very difficult to put into practice like this method of writing a grant. And often where people fall short is in the first paragraph because that's where it's necessary to grab the attention of the reader without sounding cookie cutter, like this research is about blah, 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 blah. She gives an example of four different opening sentences. I'll have you listen and try to pick <laughs> which one is likely to work best. For the audience, pick which one you think people would want to give money to. Number one, my dissertation is about declining polar bear populations. Number two, I am applying to the X Fellowship to support my dissertation, which is on declining polar bear population. Number three, many scientists in the field of environmental studies have been debating the cause of polar bear population decline. Number four, polar bear populations are plummeting due to the recent changes in climate. Which one would you choose? 
I don't like – okay, so for the second <laughs> one where I was just like I'm applying to blah is something mm-hmm. – like that doesn't seem like something you want, you know? Yeah. But like the last one where it's just like plummeting, it kind of like gives like drama to it. <laughs> there is drama. There's, There's like, drama. Like, Why is this happening? Tell me what's more. What's going on with the polar bears? I yeah. mean <laughs> So if I was to pick Number four. either of them, it'd be four first and then three. Three is like more okay, but not the best because um, it brings in like environmental studies and stuff. But but what you said about like applying to X fellowship, I yeah. think that's okay, but not in the opening. Not in the opening. That's like good for like an email being like, hi, my <laughs> name is blah, blah, and I'm applying for blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Well, I'm thinking back to like my Stanford application. So in like the PhD application in particular, you want to write about why the department is perfect for you and like what you could contribute to it and what they could give you by allowing you to be there. And so in that case, you're writing like, I'm applying to this program because of its extensive research in this and the people who do this and I want to collaborate with them and do that. So I think if you have a way to bring that in, like why they would benefit you and why you would benefit them by receiving the grant. I think it's good, but not like in the first sentence. No, it's like bring that in later. You want like that catching opening where they're just like kind of drawn in being like the the polar, the polar bear population. So largely (laughs) population of polar bears are plummeting due to recent changes in the climate. (laughs) I'm going to bring up, my opening sentence we'll see we'll rate it on a scale of one to four like okay so my opening sentence was in 2015 the cambodian archaeological lidar initiative extended a previous landscape scale airborne laser scanning survey of archaeological landscapes across cambodia one sentence and then the next sentence was these landscapes are rich with large and small temples that have yet to be surveyed and analyzed using the fulbright student program for independent research i propose to spend 10 months in cambodia surveying analyzing and digitally preserving sites primarily in the region of samber Cook beginning in september of 2019 so i guess like i i did a little bit of all of them <laughs> i didn't really concise it into like sentence four but yeah so i guess in that case i use like this grant i will use this grant to do this so i guess it's fine it all depends <laughs> but the the first sentence where you're just like in 2015 you've already done your research this is what's accessible for me yeah and then this is what i can do with this data. yeah and so with that, too, it showed that I already had access to this data. It wasn't something that I would have to try to get after yes. getting the grant, too, which I That's think important. is important. To mm-hmm. show how prepared you are is super important because then they'll know that you're not going to waste time like running into walls of like, Dilly oh, down. I wasn't able to get this um, permission to get on this land or like that sort of thing it shows that you already have these things in place all you need is the money to be able to execute it and i think the closer you can get to that the more likely you'll be able to get the grant yeah yeah that sounds about right yeah that's about right <laughs> for the project that i was thinking about starting up i had so i was like looking if there's anything similar that had been done which there was not mm-hmm. and then I was just looking through the country and then I found a professor at a university in this country that had done Fulbright and he was like the Fulbright representative type thing so he had done mm-hmm. Fulbright before and he went to my undergrad university for his wow. master's PhD and so I'm like this is a sign I need to message him so I messaged him being like yeah I like and say yeah but <laughs> it's no. like yo dude uh, I came across you and saw that you went to my alma mater and it's like, go beach. <laughs> and then I was just like, this is kind of like what I'm interested in doing and kind of like just seeing if he had any sort of advice for me for the country and such. He gave me good advice. And so then it was just like, okay, if I, I needed a university or institution, I could fall back on him potentially. Yeah. yeah. 
That's exactly the things you want to do is see what's out there to help you prepare for applying to the grant. Like if you have a professor who's done similar research, get their recommendation letter. Or if you have an institution in the country you want to go to, get a letter from them saying that they'll support you and that sort of thing. I think all of those add up to points for you in receiving a grant. I think like the next step would have been I want to like look into New Zealand working with the indigenous people and seeing if they have any sort of connection because like my aunt is from New Zealand and she hasn't I don't remember when the last time she visited but she obviously still has like family over there and then I made a friend on an airplane once that's from New Zealand and <laughs> we're pretty tight. He sent me a Avatar the Last Airbender meme and yeah, so then I would just ask him. And then I feel like I know some other people from New Zealand, but alas. That's essentially the one, two, three on how to grant. I wrote a couple Tumblr posts about this process and just like examples of my grants um, for people to look at to get inspired with that. So I'll link those in the description also. Definitely check out the professors in um for this sort of information also that's a great resource i think she has a paid subscription also for access to more content uh there's tons of people out there willing to help so just look for them and reach out to them go on to linkedin find someone who's gotten the grant that you're applying to and reach out i've had a couple people just in the last month that are thinking of applying to fulbright reach out to me on LinkedIn with zero connections to me at all. And we've become friends and like chatted about it and given advice and passed over. So like there's so many people out there willing to do that. So just ask and you shall receive and good luck with grant hunting and applying and all that and writing. And it's, it's tedious, but it's worth it. And you can get a lot of money and opportunities to do really cool things with grants so if you have any questions also feel free to reach out to us on twitter or instagram or is that it yeah twitter or, or discord um at i dig it podcast on everything i think we're gonna link a new discord link in this description also because the other one expired but we had someone reach out for it so that's cool just feel free to dm anywhere Find us, send us a DM, slide on in. Yeah. So before we end this episode, I want to do, I want to introduce a little happy corner because I know we have some fun announcements. So let's talk about all the good things that are happening in our life right now amidst the chaos. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> Thank you. I know I am. Alyssa, do you want to go first? Do I want to go first? Ugh. Okay, so happy corner for me. In two weeks, exactly, I will be moving to the Bay Area to move into a new apartment to get ready for PhD. And Woo! I will no longer be living in my parents' dining room. Woo! And that is a very happy corner for me. I can't wait to not live <laughs> in a dining room. I love living with my parents, but I, I want. I want my own space. So I'm super excited for that. Yeah. That's mine. And do you know what? What? I get to help you move. Because you do you do, know why? You know why? Tell them because why. Because in Michaela. four days, I'm moving up to Sacramento because I got a job. Woo! <laughs> Woo! Yay. Yeah. And what will you be doing with the job? I will be working as an archaeologist for ACOM. Yeah, you will. Yeah, I will. Basically stealing your job. Yeah. Just kidding. Kind of. Not really. Happily. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So this is an example of where networking is really important. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Basically, I'm leaving my job to go start my PhD. So there was an opening and I was able to recommend Michaela to apply to it and she was able to get it. So that was really cool. Um, and I'm super excited for you. I think it's going to be a great opportunity to get your foot it's, in the door. I know. I, I'm just, 
it's like I love talking about archaeology, but I'm so excited to be actually in it again. Doing it. And, and doing it. It's like now oh. you can be called an archaeologist since I'm a know. person who Just studies like, it. I mean, I still use the term archaeologist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just but now you're job. doing. Now I'm actually an ar- archaeologist doing archaeological yeah. things. I'm getting paid by it. Yeah, I'm ex- I'm so excited. Yeah. I've been searching for a job for a while. It's been now. a long time coming. You deserve yeah. everything. It's been so. since last September. Yeah, almost a year. <sighs> hundreds and hundreds of applications. Congrats. I'm happy. Moved three different times. Or, yeah, so I moved from York to Scotland trying to find jobs in Scotland. Then I moved from Scotland to California trying to look for jobs in California because my visa would be expiring and money. And now moving from California to Sacramento. From California to Sacramento. <laughs> from California to Sacramento. <laughs> it's its own country. <laughs> no. From Southern California to Northern California. There we go. <laughs> but one thing that I like have been saying is that moving countries is so much easier than moving up the state. Because when you move countries, you just have bags, like maybe two suitcases filled with your clothes not even could be all of your clothes maybe not but also like some personal belongings and then you move and then when you move again you might i i moved into a place that was fully furnished so i didn't have to buy furniture which was awesome and then i just kind of brought all the things i accumulated during my time in york and when i went up to edinburgh i was like nice and then i had to pack all that and give away stuff to my friends because i was mm-hmm. just like here's a monitor and here's some other things <laughs> and lamp and- you guys are gonna be here forever basically <laughs> and but now it's like i have to pack up every single thing in my room because my mom's like oh you're out out <laughs> <laughs> like i don't forget to take like i was go- not that i was going to but i was gonna leave my posters like on my walls and just like some things like in my closet my mom's just like oh no it's posters coming down like don't forget to pack those take everything out of the closet and i'm like oh man <laughs> <laughs> so i have to bring everything well it's like i officially got the offer letter like a week prior and so it's like i had two weeks I know it was 10 days to move because I like got a place and I got the official approval within 10 days or 10 days before. So let's say you're going to help me um, decorate my room because I'm not good with me. interior design. Yeah. Still not I good don't with know interior if design I am either. I, I, I don't know, but four eyes are better than two. <laughs> That's true. But yeah. We got some good stuff happening. Yep. 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 It all works out in the end. And if it hasn't worked out yet, it's not the end. It's like you made a good point yesterday where it's like if it's meant to be, things will fall into place. And I just think about like a puzzle piece. You don't want to put pieces of the puzzle that aren't supposed to fit together together. Don't stuff them in. You just got to find the one that fits. You got to find the one that fits. Even if you're uncomfortable for a while, you'll be okay. Anyway, bye. Bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.